0: Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. The headlights on both teams.
1: Welcome folks to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. In this week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have
2: missed in the October 19th print edition. We'll have a featured interview, and we'll bring the latest
1: on the grain markets, and then some final thoughts. That's right, Kayleen. Hey, so we are in still in the middle of National 4-H Month and High Plains Journal is rolling out our circulation campaign in uh, this week, actually, uh, to help benefit 4-H. And we are so excited to partner with the National 4-H Program. And uh, you can watch for those details about how you and your circulation dollars can go to help some 4-Hers in your area. Uh, You can look for those online and in the pages of the High Plains Journal. And we're, our, we'll also be featuring interviews this month and throughout the rest of the year with some great 4-H families and, and volunteers about how the uh, program has provided hashtag opportunity for all. So, Kayleen, you and I have been talking the last couple of weeks here in the podcast about the things that 4-H taught us and, and memories and that sort of thing. I'll tell you one thing that I am forever grateful is taught, 4-H taught me how to speak in public. And how to organize my thoughts. It may not appear at some on the podcast, but it did teach me that. I used that just today to speak to some New Mexico State University ag comm students. The best and brightest, Kayleen. I always enjoy it when um, it's kind of flattering when people ask you to speak in front of a, a group of, of youth about what you do for a living. I don't know why, because I'm more of a cautionary tale than an example to follow, Kayleen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you said that I didn't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was interesting, the questions that they asked. Uh, one one young person asked, um, how do you handle a story with an interview that you may not like the subject, or you may not like the person that you're talking to, or you may not agree with them, or you know, how do you separate your personal feelings from the professional? And that kind of had me thinking, Kayleen, I know how I do it. How do you do it? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, usually the stuff
2: I like to write about, is not going to be in the High Plains Journal <laughs> or not in there as often, but you know, I've had to write stuff where, for example, animal rights stuff or HSUS, that sort of stuff that I don't really have a fond opinion about, and I just have to to fight back my urge <laughs> to be not nice and present both sides and and do as I was taught in ad communications. You know, present both sides and leave your opinion out of it. And if I feel strongly enough about something, I'll go write a blog post or
1: do something like that. I really tried to stress to them that there is an opinion page, and then there's the rest of the paper. And, you know, there is a place and a a, a time and a place for the opinions and the editorializing. And then there is articles. And if they have not yet figured out the difference between the two, they need to take their courses over again. And -hmm. that got a good chuckle. (laughs) But I, I was I'm right with you, Kayleen. There is there are a lot of times where we go and are talking to a source that is not exactly the nicest person on the planet. We may not agree with them, but you tamp it down and you're there for the job. And at the end of the day, the job is making sure that the readers or the listeners in this case, guys, that they have the information that they need to make the decisions and make their own decisions. I don't tell you how to think. I just tell you what other people are thinking. So that's, uh, that was one good question. Um, There was a lot of, you know, what would you have done differently? I don't know. I've been here 20. This is the only job I had after college, Kayleen. So I don't know if sometimes I think maybe I missed out on exploring different career options. (laughs) Well,
2: this is my second job out of college. I mean, I was a general assignment reporter, so I got to see the whole gamut in in a medium sized town. It wasn't a big town, but it made me realize that I prefer to be in agriculture and want to be telling the stories of farmers and ranchers and you know it's not that bad of a thing to try other other jobs other things that are within the realm of the industry I mean my sister for example she was an animal science major and she started out at a job at a pig farm she was a the, what was it called? She was a selection agent. She picked all the guilts that went on into the sow herd. And then she went on to, she was an assistant at an extension office and a couple of other jobs here and there. And she worked at the courthouse recently and she's now a cattle clerk at a feed yard. So, I mean, she's within the realm of agriculture, but it's not necessarily what she set out to do, but still she's using the skills that she learned in college.
1: I think that's the whole point of college. You may not actually ever have a job that fits to what your degree actually is in. And if you do, and if you're lucky like Kayleen and I are and have that, that's a, that's a blessing, but you know what? You're not a failure. If you went somewhere else, I've I've got a former roommate who has an ag education degree and she teaches special education now, you know? Um, she thought she wanted to be an fFA advisor, and she finds the greatest reward in working with children with special needs. You know what? God puts you where you're supposed to be. you know why you're supposed to be there, you may never understand, but you gotta have faith that you are in the right place at the right time for the right reason so um yeah it was it was interesting talking with them uh how what's new in your world? um what do you think about uh a skill that you still use from 4-H that we haven't already talked about?
2: Well, I don't, I'm not real sure. I mean, I, judging was a big part of my 4-H career and, you know, I showed livestock and there's still times where I question my ability to judge livestock, to pick the right animals. But my sister and I were talking about 4-H calves or heifers or prospect steers, you know, for the coming year. And She's made comments more than once. Well, this steer went for this amount of money and this one went for that amount of money. And I'm like, well, at least you can pick a good one if they're selling for that kind of money.
1: (laughs) But, you know, I can see with with judging and giving reasons, being able to stand in front of somebody and back what you're saying, back to play. Yeah. That's a self confidence booster that not a lot of kids understand. You know, there's not a lot of opportunities in sports to stand up in front of the empire and go, I think you're wrong. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to tell you six reasons why you're wrong, (laughs) or this is how the play should have gone. And these are the five reasons why it should be that way. 4-H gives you that opportunity, that safe opportunity to do that in a place where you may be making a mistake, but it's okay to make those mistakes there. Nobody's lives are on the line. There was lots of classes that
2: I placed completely backwards (laughs) and I live to tell about it. And there was lots of times where I placed the class wrong, but I got a higher score on my reasons than I did
1: on the, on the class. So (laughs) I remember talking with the, the former um, president of us weed associates and I asked him what the secret to running a successful multinational organization like that is. And he said, you know what? It's hiring the right people, with the right skills, and trusting them to do the right thing. And he said sometimes they make mistakes that are a little bit costly, but we always give them room to fail. And it's not out of some oh you're gonna
3: fail. Blah, blah,
1: blah. It's you know what you you tried it it didn't work what did you learn let's try it again pick yourself up and go. And that's the whole point of the 4H program. It's a safe place to test your wings and figure out how you're going to fly. So it provides opportunity for all, Kayleen. It sure does. So how are you folks doing out there? Drop us a line
2: at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or call us at
1: 1-800-452-7171. Yeah, let us know even what 4-H brought to your world. We'd love to hear that. And do us a favor and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts Go ahead and leave us a review. Alta Seeds brings you this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line in the U.S. market in the first ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S., enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to register for the second Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day, which will be November 5th and will further showcase iGrowth at hpj.com slash sorghum frontiers learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm well kayleen it's misting here and it feels like fall i'm gonna have to bring in some plants tonight because i think it's gonna freeze but uh if you folks are in the middle of the uh, fall harvest run or you're just trying to bring in those last bitty tomatoes off the plants before the freeze why don't you uh Crank us up on the old earbuds and ride with us here on HPJ Talk.
2: This week's cover story is by one of our All Aboard Harvest correspondents, Brian Jones. Existing technology unlocks profit. During harvest, long hours are logged and months of hard work and decision making finally come to fruition. Jones said it's the report card of the growing season and it's the first accurate glimpse of how the balance sheet may look at the end of the year. Data is pushing the envelope when it comes to management decisions and navigating the economic environment as well. Sometimes cost-cutting measures... And changes to the operation aren't in plain sight, but information that has a real impact on the bottom line is out there just waiting to be discovered. It's not a game of hide and seek, but rather leveraging technology from one of the most sophisticated pieces of equipment on your farm, the combine.
1: Yeah, Kayleen, today's combines are just tremendously chock full of tools, aren't they?
2: Yeah, it's obnoxious how much technology they have in them. And you have to beat smarter than the machine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and you actually got to take a a spin on a round or two with, uh, with Brian, when they were harvesting, uh, South of Dodge city here this last summer, um, while you were in the cab, what, what sort of technology does he have in that cab that just wowed you? I mean, he has, I believe it's an
2: iPad in there that shows, you know, what the data looks like. And they've got the monitor that's built in the combine telling you the, the moisture and the all this stuff that's going in the in the bin behind him and there's just so much that goes in there that you have to watch and that essentially I shouldn't say you have to watch I mean it's watching it for you I mean it's doing most of the work but it's just crazy I mean the, how the thing is so big and how much ground it can cover and you know combined with the technology it's just crazy considering what what my dad used to drive when I was a kid. Right?
1: <laughs> we had Oliver combines and white combines and they were nowhere near what the today's sophisticated equipment are. And you know, all of that equipment runs based off of people's ingenuity and engineers that may never have grown up on a farm, but they know But they were given a task and this piece of equipment needs to fill that task and they used their talents and abilities to make it work. And so, you know, farmers today, you may not be a gearhead, you may not be a tech head, but, you know, there's a lot of people that that are behind the pieces of equipment that we run that make it so we have a more efficient harvest. And they may not get the glory. <laughs> they may never actually ride around in the thing in a field um, after they've designed it. But uh, there are a lot of good people that are using their skills um, to improve the lives of people they don't even know. How cool is that? Pretty neat. Well, speaking of really cool applications and some, some new developments, Kayleen has a story on the inside. Water management could be transformed by a new web application. So representatives of the Environmental Defense Fund, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the Desert Research Institute, and Google, recently announced they have a web application in development called OpenET to help transform water management in the western United States. And this is critical. Uh, Water supplies are becoming increasingly scarce in certain areas of the U.S., and there are thousands of people across the West making water decisions every single day, from farmers to local and regional water managers to state and federal planners and even more. Many are constantly tasked with being asked to do more with less, making good data and information that much more important. So OpenET is a web application that aims to enable improved water management by providing field scale evapotranspiration data across 17 Western states. So for those of you listening, evapotranspiration, remember back to our science class, is the process by which water evaporates from the land surface and transpires from plants. So evapotranspiration is the second largest component of the water cycle. And it can be thought of as the opposite of precipitation. Kayleen, this is tremendous. We're using NASA and Google to actually help us preserve water in the West. And water is one of the single limiting resources we have for agricultural production out here, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And you
2: know, it's NASA and all these science people and all these technology people. And the call that I listened in on they were very down to earth and very ex- explain the stuff very well. And it's so neat that they can be able to collect this data in real time and the maps and different things that they all are going to have on the, the web application is going to probably be a game
1: changer for some of those guys where the water is, is really, really scarce. Well, thank goodness. We have good people that are using their heads to help us answer some questions out here. Yeah. On the Opinions and Editorials
2: page, Editor Dave Bergmeier has a column this week, Eisenhower's Time Offers Lesson to Ponder. And a letter to the editor comes from Farah S. Ahmed, the Environmental Health Officer and State Epidemiologist of the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, Kansas Children Still at Risk for Lead Poisoning. And there's another letter to the editor from Lori Fisher, CEO of the American Dairy Coalition, A Strong Relationship with Your Elective
1: Officials is key in protecting the future of dairy that's right folks and you may be listening to this and don't forget election day november 3rd get those votes in well our copy editor jennifer thurer has a story from alfalfa u an exciting future awaits alfalfa suresh bamidamiri research scientist for corteva agriscience took alfalfa u attendees back in time And explained that 30 to 50 years ago alfalfa research was based on what producers needed in alfalfa to survive the winter without harming yields. Developing alfalfa that will thrive under less than ideal conditions is now the aim of current alfalfa research and today's methods include using drones for precision phenotyping, gene editing, and borrowing a page from the livestock industry, genomic selection. And remember folks, We'll have Alfalfa U coming to a place near you in 2021, so be watching for details. And there's a few more stories in there from our
2: editors and writers here at High Plains Journal, and you can always read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal or look for it online anytime
1: at www.hpj.com. If you've got a response to something you read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. folks, this is Jenny Latsky, and we are still celebrating National 4-H Month. We're over here at High Plains Journal, and we are so excited to have with us today Dr. Erica Earlbeck, who is on staff at uh, Texas Tech University, but she is also a um, proud uh, adult volunteer for the 4-H program in Lubbock, Texas. And Dr. Earlbeck, You're actually part of um, a group that is starting a brand new 4-H club from scratch. Uh, Tell us a little bit about it. We
3: are. Well, um, we started, I I have an eight-year-old who is eligible to start 4-H, and so I was looking for a 4-H club for him to join, and there are plenty of 4-H clubs here in Lubbock County, but there wasn't one inside Lubbock and not necessarily one for students in the Lubbock Independent School District. And it's kind of one of those things that there have been clubs in and out, but once those kids kind of age out of the 4-H system, there wasn't a volunteer to take over. And so there used to be a Hub City 4-H club, so, and I'm not all that creative with naming things, so I'm just like, that'll work. And uh, so we just, uh, took that name and have kind of revived a club that, um, kind of went, um, dark for a while. And, uh, so yeah, we're starting it up and it's, it's more of an urban 4-H program, but we do have some students that are showing livestock and, uh, doing a lot of your more traditional things. But, um, I, I, you know, and I, we're really just open and available for any kid in Lubbock County that does not have a home 4-H club.
1: Okay. So Erica, you and I, we've known each other for a long time, and I'm just so ex- excited that your, your your boy is old enough for 4-H because you and I, we've talked about how the program has so much to give to youngsters and their families. Why was it important for you and your husband um, to donate time, to volunteer, to step up and raise a hand and go, we'll be the adults that help out some kids?
3: Yes. So with me, I can look back and point most of any success in life came from skills that I learned in 4-H. And, um, you know, I, I, I say this so much and people are like enough with that joke, but public speaking in 4-H is the best thing my mother forced me to do. And I mean, forced I threw fits. I did not want to speak in front of people, but what a great skill to have. So that's kind of my core thing that I want my child to be able to do is to speak in front of a group of people, no matter how big or small. So I think In my opinion, that's the best skill, Um, but I had other projects as well, you know, 4-H teaches you to be a good citizen and a good member of society, teaches you to give back, 4-H teaches you leadership skills, Um, you know, so I think that's the basis of the great things that you get from 4-H, and then you have all your project specific things, and other side lessons from that. So yes, I know how to feed pigs. I can keep pigs alive, but beyond that, I learned a great deal of responsibility. And if you shirk your responsibility with your livestock project, your project could die. Um, so sure. those are a lot of those big life skills, responsibility learning uh, that come from 4-H. And I can attribute so many things back to those skills as well. Um, and you know, another great example I have to attribute back to my mom, because she was our local 4-H leader. So you know, she was busy. She had three kids and I had, I have one. So, I mean, and she had a full-time job. So do I, she, she did way more than I do. And she still managed to be a really great 4-H leader. So that was a, another good example for me. Like, yeah, I'm busy, but this is important enough for my kid and for other kids that I'm going to make the time to do this.
1: You know, we talk so much about creating mentoring programs in other aspects of our professional lives, in other organizations that we belong to. But really, it's always seemed to me um, that 4-H is a natural-born mentorship program because adult volunteers and leaders are really the the drivers of um, making sure that, that youth have opportunities for all, as the hashtag is this year. Um, Who were some of your 4-H mentors that influenced you, besides your mom, who was a great influence?
3: Right, exactly. So I uh, give a very large shout out to my county agents, who were also really great mentors for me. So uh, two wonderful people in Northwest Oklahoma, Karen Brewster and Bob LaValley. So they were my two county agents. Um, there were a couple of other volunteer leaders in our 4-H club that were really active. Debbie Stoner was one of them. Cindy Baker was another one. And, uh, you know, like... my mom, I was a frustrating child. So, and Cindy Baker only had boys and she wanted girls so bad. So anytime we had fashion review or anything like that, Cindy would do my hair (laughs) because she wanted (laughs) girls so bad. So thank you, Cindy, for fixing my hair all those years. (laughs) And then beyond that, there were some also really great, when I was the little brat in fourth grade, there were some really great high school kids still involved in 4-H that that were great role models and you know were really good examples but also were comfortable enough around me to tell me hey Erica don't act like that don't don't do that <laughs> so you know a lot of the i got to give some credit to a lot of those uh, high school girls that i just looked up to so much that were really good role models for me as well
1: you know we all have those big sisters and big brothers that aren't by blood but yes. um I tell people all the time, I'm, I come from a community, you were related by blood, by marriage, by church, or by 4-H. <laughs> yeah.
3: That's great. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that is great. Yes, absolutely. So we've talked about um, volunteering. We've talked about imp- um, the importance of 4-H and how it brings opportunities for all. As you're going about and talking to um, parents um, and, and promoting the brand new 4-H club, the Hub City 4-H club, Um, What is your sales pitch? What, what are they concerned about this right now? um, And how can 4-H help their families, their children develop in the time of COVID?
3: yeah that's a oh and that has presented a big challenge we really don't have a meeting place we kind of just meet wherever we can uh so that's because we, we we're we not allowed to meet in any of the school buildings at the moment um so that that's been a challenge for us but we'll we're figuring it out we're we're doing fine with that but um some things that i tell people i usually start with the misconception so number one we don't have livestock you don't have to have livestock to participate. We don't. My child does not have livestock. He shows no interest, and I am not going to make it. <laughs> that is a project where you have to love it. Um, so that's that's the one thing. Uh, number two, we don't have a sewing machine. You don't have to do the clothing project if you don't want to. Uh, 4-H is for little kids. Uh, no, there are some. 4-H is a program all the way up to seniors in high school. So that that's another thing that I uh, am. Uh, constantly reminding people of. Another thing about 4-H is that it is as much or as little of a commitment as you want it to be. So we only meet once a month. And um, you don't have to attend the meetings to maintain your membership. And as our local county agent, Rhonda Alexander, reminds people a lot. She's like, you know, we have some 4-H'ers that only do shooting sports or that only do robotics. And that's fine. So, you know, if if that's your passion, then uh, go with it. And you can continue doing those same projects all the time. Um, You know, it's 4-H is one of those programs that you get out of it, what you put into it. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of other great Opportunities for kids like you know my son's also in scouts um and he's kind of been introduced to the shooting ideas they haven't done a whole lot of it in scouts yet but he that shooting sports is something that he really wants to do this year so that's that's going to be his project for the year and public speaking
1: <laughs> we had a rule in our house we had a rule in our house there were projects that mom demanded of us and projects dad demanded of us and then there were projects that we just got to have because they were fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Erica, you and I know that we are both, you know, everybody's busy today. You're a busy lady. You've got a lot of commitments on the professional side and on your family side. How is it that um, you came about to this decision of, I'm going to invest my time, my family's time in volunteering with 4-H and restarting a 4-H club? Yeah, yeah.
3: I knew that it was important and I had been thinking about it. And I sent a text to my freshman year roommate at Oklahoma State, who I met through 4-H. We sat next to each other on the bus when we went to on the Washington, D.C. trip. Her name's Kara Farrell. She used to be accounting agent. So I sent her a text. I'm like, hey, I'm kind of thinking about starting a 4-H club. And uh, she texted right back so fast. She's like, you need to do this. And you know, I texted her back. I'm like, I don't have time but I think I need to she's like no nobody has time to do this type of thing but you know everybody thinks they're so busy and now nobody is stepping up to lead things like 4-H like scouts like Sunday school so you should do this and I'm like you're right we all are busy but if we want these opportunities for our kids we're gonna have to step up and make them happen So, yes, thank you, Kara Farrell, for pushing me that direction.
1: (laughs) Well, and to other adults out there, honestly, you get just about as much back from being a volunteer leader as as you give. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, like I've been around these kids just a couple of times, and already I love these kids. They're so much fun, and I am so excited to see how they grow and develop through this program.
1: You know, everybody has talents and it's just a matter of where we uh, deploy them in the right manner and, and in the most effective way. Exactly, exactly.
3: And if leading a club is not uh, your cup of tea, then lead the shooting sports project or open up your home and let some of the students come in and sew there or teach them how to bake cookies or you know, just take a little project and help out with that or be willing to just be the program leader, just present at one monthly meeting for them. And that's, you know, that's a huge investment into their development.
1: Okay, Erica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, if people are interested in uh, joining the Hub City 4-H Club there in Lubbock, Texas, or if they want more information about Texas 4-H, where can they go to?
3: So first stop would be uh, the Texas 4-H website. And uh, that's, that has really provided me with a lot of information. So there's tons of info about the projects and, and things like that. Um, secondly, if they're in Lubbock County or whatever County they're in, call count, call the County office and, uh, they will direct you to the right County Extension Office and they will direct you to the club that's closest to you or that most fits your interests and uh, if they're in Lubbock uh, Hub City 4-H Club we're on Facebook and if they can't find us on Facebook then just go to Lubbock County 4-H and uh, get a hold of the county agent and she'll direct you to us and uh, we meet the third Thursdays at six o'clock We're in a different location every month, but that's okay because next month we're going to go out to one of our students' livestock projects. We're going to see their pigs, and so we're meeting out at their farm, so that should be really fun. Um, And I don't know where we're meeting in December, but we will have a meeting at a location. So (laughs) that's uh,
1: one of the challenges of a new club, but we're working through it. Hey, that is tremendous. Well, thank you, Erica, Dr. Earlbeck. Um, good luck to the <laughs> Hub City you. 4-H Club. Good luck to all 4-Hers as they, um, you know, go through this, this new kind of challenging time frame of, of figuring out how to work around what we have going on in the world right now. And uh, good luck. We, we appreciate you joining you. us.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's been fun to chat with you. <laughs>
2: Your grain market prices from Dodge City's Pride Egg Resources on October 13th, corn was up at $4.06, wheat was down at $5.01, milo was up at $4.70, and soybeans were up at $9.54. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, wwwhpjcom slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for our cotton issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes October 26th with a story from Lacey Newland. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com.
1: Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new eye growth sorghum line in July iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to sign up to catch the second installment of Sorghum Frontiers, which will be November 5th, by registering at www.hpj.com sorghumfrontiers and learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail.
0: Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle love with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends